Welcome to Better Sex. I'm your host, Matthew Chambers. Each episode, I aim to have conversations with culturally and spiritually engaging guests. Some you'll know, and some you won't. Some you'll agree with, and some you won't. But hopefully all of us will come away challenged. Hopefully all of us will come away a little bit wiser. Hopefully we'll seek and find. Maybe a more empathetic view of humanity, or a more expansive view of spirituality, perhaps even a deeper view of how to navigate the life we've been given. I'm still learning my way around this whole podcast business, so please bear with me as I figure out microphones and sound and levels and making sure the Wi-Fi works properly the entire time. These conversations are absolutely worth it. I promise. Today, I get to chat with fellow preacher's kid, dear friend, author, and speaker, Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan is a trusted voice in America on matters of religion, culture, and politics. He's an award-winning contributor for The Atlantic and a contributing editor for The Week. But his writing doesn't end there. Jonathan has published more than 3,500 articles in respected outlets such as The New York Times, USA Today, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. He regularly contributes commentary to television, print, and radio news. You may have caught him on ABC World News, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, PBS, and CBS's 60 Minutes. In non-COVID times, Jonathan speaks all over on topics relating to spirituality, politics, and current events. He's sincere, an incredibly deep thinker, and has a gift for communicating in a way that speaks directly to the issue and even more to the heart. Jonathan holds master's degrees from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and Emory University. He has done additional graduate work at the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church. He's the recipient of numerous awards and accolades, including the Wilbur Award for Excellence in Journalism, the Religion News Association's Columnist of the Year Award, and the Inglewood Review of Books Book of the Year Award. So my friends, please get ready to dive deep on today's episode of Better Sex. Jonathan Merritt, thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on. Oh, and, it's my uh, pleasure. Um, so uh, we are a few weeks out now from the incredible, riveting presidential election. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. But I would, I'm really fascinated because you this year in the midst of this um, pandemic, have uh, taken some significant time off as you're working on a new book. You took a sabbatical. Um, and even in the midst of that and before that, you've also been sort of navigating uh, some pretty interesting personal um, journeys as well. So I would love just to hear a little bit about, first of all, how was your sabbatical? Um, do you feel like you got everything done? Um, where did you go? What did you do? What do you do on us? What does one do on a sabbatical? I, I have seven kids and I, I don't know that I, I am going to get to have one of those for a little while. You know, you work is what you do. You work, uh, you relax a bit too, um, but you work, you retreat, uh, and you relax. Uh, so I spent three weeks in rural Kentucky. Uh, you know, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was about an hour and a half outside of Louisville in a small, small town where, Very nice. uh, you know, I, I, I created a, a contract with myself that I would get up every day at 8 a.m. That the first thing I would do is to make my bed, that I mm -hmm. would do X, Y, and Z throughout the day, that every day I would do physical exercise, on and on. 
And uh, I spent three weeks in Kentucky. Uh, then I spent about 10 days in Connecticut, and then I went to the Finger Lakes, and then I was in the Hudson Valley, and then I was back in the Finger Lakes. Um, <laughs> and all in all, it was about a two-month uh, sabbatical, but I, I was I was working uh, morning and night, really, trying yeah. to spend most of the time working on uh, what I wanted to write my next book about. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, when you when you do what I do, which is like a lot of different things at the same time, that means that when you're on sabbatical, you're doing a lot of that. The only difference is, is you're doing it alone. Uh And um, that was really helpful to me. I want to talk about the new book in a second. Just I I know you're sort of still in the writing, editing phase of that. But I'm curious from a writer's perspective. And, you know, I mean, that's what you do. Journalism and you know, uh, personal writing and all that. But I, do you feel like it makes it easier if you're in different places? Like, I know you think about writer's block, but I'm like, from a creative standpoint perspective, do you feel like being in different spots allows you to kind of see what you're working on differently and unlock different words? I I do for me, and I can only speak uh, for me, you know, writers love to universalize their experience and they create like, you know, you got to be up at 6 a.m. You got to be you got to write down the first thing you think of. You got to do you can only you got to for me, um, uh, I can only tell you how I write. And uh, I find that a change of scenery. Uh geographical shift is important. It's helpful. I find that places have personalities like people have personalities Uh and um, the interplay between my personality as a creative, a writer, a dreamer, a thinker, and uh, a place uh, produces a different product. And that was a lot of peas. But uh, the point is, is that you're a preacher's uh, kid, though. So like having a lot of peas in, in your in your points is very natural. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I alliterate without even thinking about it. <laughs> so I, I find that that if I if I have a change in scenery, um, I will often have a change in substance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I try to. When I'm when I'm doing work to move around, there's a there's a routine. You know, I'm talking to you now from my apartment in Manhattan, and I have a particular routine here. Um, But when I go somewhere else, that routine shifts, and oftentimes uh, the the products that creatives uh, produce, the content that they produce, is directly related to the environments that they are in. When that content is being birthed, and so uh, I tend to like to move around. I know there are a lot of, of writers who do the opposite. They want to go some one place, uh, and they want to knock it out, and and that's just not something that I've ever done or have ever been able to do. Do you feel like over the past couple of months you've you've really landed um, on sort of the the substance and the voice and the and the story that you want to unpack in this next book? You know, the book is about trauma. Mm. And I think anytime that you've experienced trauma and anytime you try to speak of the unspeakable, which Mm -hmm. is what trauma is, you find yourself confronted with a a nearly impossible task. And uh, so this has been the most difficult creative project I've ever worked on. Mm. I've made less progress than I had hoped for. Uh, 
uh, in, in different seasons. I've had to hire uh, a, a writing coach to help me think and to organize. And um, I, I've had to completely reinvent my writing process. And, and everybody who's out there who's experienced trauma, whether it's acute trauma, uh-huh. you know, uh, abuse, neglect, abandonment, uh, or if you've had the kind of what I would call the trauma of the ordinary, the kind of trauma that uh, that we often endure just by living life, uh, the trauma that people have endured in a global pandemic, uh-huh. in a political moment like we're in right now, from being raised in um, oppressive or fundamentalist religious environments, uh-huh. um, things that we have normalized. Yeah. Because yeah. they are they are incidental and common to life. Um, those kinds of traumas, people who are listening who've been through those kinds of traumas understand it. When you try to re-narrate those life experiences, you find it increasingly difficult because it, they they appear to you as snapshots. Right. Uh, right. They're they're emotional memories and they're not always linear. And so how do you arrange those in such a way that you get meaning? Uh-huh. Uh, that's a hard, hard task. And um, it is not a task I am particularly enjoying, uh-huh. but uh, it is it's a task that I believe I need to do. Well, and your other books, it sounds like this book is going to be fairly deeply personal. Um for you and your own story and your own journey. Whereas your other books, you know, obviously are, are personal in a different sense, but they feel more, you know, generalized as far as topics like your, your past book about, you know, how to speak God from scratch isn't necessarily a, a Jonathan Merritt personal journey story is, is so this one, this one's going to dig into your own journey. Yeah, it will. Um, you know, I have been on, a healing journey when it comes to my own trauma for the last 10 years. And as a journalist, that journey has been largely private. It's been something that I have, uh, I have been doing with the help of therapists, with the help of uh, spiritual guides, with the help of friends that I trust, uh, with certain members of my family. But uh, this is not something that I have been discussing in detail with readers or fans or on social media. Right, right. And so there, there may be some folks who go, you know, I kind of felt like maybe you were going through that. <laughs> but I didn't understand the story mm. until you told me about it. Um, so it's not a memoir. It's a book okay. about trauma. Okay. But because I'm a person who's experienced trauma, you will read a lot of personal narrative in it. Was it challenging for you? And you and I both grew up in very similar Southern Baptist preacher's kid backgrounds. Um, Was it difficult for you as you sort of identified? And I I mean, I don't even know how you identified your trauma or what it was or, or all the different facets of it. But was it difficult to reach a point where you you felt and maybe this is still challenging, but where you felt at peace? inviting those other people in therapists and spiritual guides and trusted members of a friend group or your family uh, to kind of help you navigate the journey through? 
You know, I, I think that, I think that, you know, when people, there are books that are written, um, that, that the, the primary animating energy of a book is inspiration. Somebody gets a spark, they, they get a stir. And, uh, you know, the, the levees of creativity open up and a book pours out. There are other books that the primary creative energy is not inspiration, but desperation. Mm. They have tried everything they can to do anything except that. To tell every story except those. To write about everything that they can think of except this one thing. And it hasn't worked because the universe, the capital U universe, uh, often has a book that's different than the one that you are trying to write. And so I would say in this process with me, it has been learning to let go. A friend of mine repeats a Japanese proverb, let go or be dragged. Um, I, I think letting go of the three books that I developed on this contract that all went down in flames before this one, uh, and to instead embrace the book that deep, deep down in the quiet moments when no one is around and it's just me, I know is the book that I should be writing. That, that has, been a, it has been a process to embrace that book. And in that process, like, as you mentioned a minute ago, you are a journalist. I mean, you 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 write these investigative pieces about all sorts of issues and um, and people, personalities. Um, do you feel like digging into your own story and the trauma that you've experienced and that you're now unpacking and revealing um, to people in, in a totally different way? Uh, do you feel like it's difficult to approach that authentically? Um, like, like you taking off the journalism hat and just saying, this is my story. I, I can't approach this the same way that I approach a piece for like religion news service or the Atlantic. Um, I, I just need to, I need to tell my story. Is it difficult to take the journalism hat on and, and just share f- from the deep? Yes. Um, it is, it is a new territory Mm -hmm. for me. You know, I have a kind of system of writing that is now for this book obsolete Mm -hmm. and, um, it's, it's, it's connected to how personal it is. It's connected to the, the way that we categorize traumatic memory. Um, it's connected to the fact that I'm doing a lot of fresh work, um, and research, Uh, as part of that as well. And um, so, yes, the answer is yes. I don't think that I can write this like I write other things. And I'm realizing there is a little bit of code switching that has to happen, you know? Um, And I I didn't anticipate that. I thought I was going to sit down and I knew how to write this. And Mm. I'm writing it now as if I have never written anything before. Mm. That's fascinating. What have, what have you learned about yourself in this process? Um, you know, I think that I am learning that uh, I, I love creating maps for books, what I call maps, which are 
like comprehensive outlines. I do this for, for other, other authors as well. It's one sure. of the, my day jobs. Um, and I have found that there are some books that uh, cannot be constrained by uh, outlines because you can only tell the story by just doing it. Uh-huh. You, you, in other words, you can't plan how to tell it and then tell it. You can't plan how to teach it uh, and then teach it. That uh-huh. you actually figure out how to tell and teach it by doing it. And, uh-huh. and so it, it, is a, it is a live and unfolding and evolving process. And that requires a different kind of skill set. It requires uh-huh. the, the ability to stop uh, trying to be a control freak it requires uh, a, a kind of a trust or confidence in the process mm-hmm. without a promise that you know where you're going. And it is a little more comfortable to explore a room when you can turn on a light switch and see everything at once. It's mm-hmm. a lot more difficult to explore a room with a flashlight. We yeah. have to take another step and another step and another step in order to see more, more, more. And uh, I have found that people who are used to entering a room and turning on a light switch and exploring it will find themselves oftentimes paralyzed in fear when they find themselves in the the dark cave Mm. of unexplored territory holding nothing but a flashlight. And I have felt that in a very visceral way. Again, you and I grew up similarly, um, very similar contexts uh, in the South. Um, For you, where did you feel like your life was diverging from the way that you were raised where did it start to feel a little bit different where you sort of looked up and thought oh i don't i don't quite fit here i I think i'm going to end up somewhere else you know there there are there's not a moment but there are moments Mm -hmm. um i think a, a big moment for me was uh, in seminary, you know, I was at a Southern Baptist seminary and I was about what, 26 years old or something. And I, I started a national initiative among leaders in my denomination to confront climate change. And we're a very conservative denomination. And uh, it, it was something that w- made me surprisingly passionate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you wrote, the you wrote a book about it. It's what you wrote a book about that. I did. My first book in 2008 was was called Green Light God, Unlocking the Divine Plan for Our Planet. And it's, you know, something I fell into, not something I I chose. But uh, I I think, you know, coming from a very conservative family, uh, my dad was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. My Dad is a you know an evangelical megachurch pastor, a televangelist on TBN. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, suddenly, when you find yourself becoming an environmental activist, it feels <laughs> odd. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing that in the context of the religion of your upbringing, as I was at the time, it feels even more odd. But the environment can be talking about environmental concerns is kind of a gateway drug because mm-hmm. suddenly you have to talk about poverty. Suddenly you have to talk about foreign policy. Suddenly you have to talk about capitalism and consumption and consumerism and taxation. And you have to talk about all kinds of injustices mm-hmm. that are related to 
uh, that issue. And when you begin to kind of pull at that thread, uh, it can take you in all sorts of ways. And it certainly uh, led me down a path that was surprising. Well, and pulling on that thread and going, quote, unquote, public with with new perspectives on that coming from where you came from also comes brings with it a lot of labels um, mm-hmm. and um, potentially even some hostility there. So, yeah. you know, so, so what was it about environmentalism though, that sort of caught your attention initially? Cause that's not all, like, that's not, you know, sometimes people get caught up in racism or like yeah. particularly in the Southern Baptist church. Now we're talking about, or they are talking about abuse, uh, different yeah. types of abuses that are happening and, and racism and, and a few other things, but environmentalism is not typically that, the top of the pile issue. Yeah. Um, yep. That's a hinge moment for somebody. You know, I, I had, a, I had a kind of conversion experience in a theology class where uh, my professor was saying, you know, God speaks to us uh, through nature, mm. just like through the Bible. Mm-hmm. And at the time as a 26 year old evangelical, uh, that made me, that made my wheels turn because I had such high and have such high respect for Christian scriptures, uh, for the religious text of, of the faith mm-hmm. that, you know, I began to think I wasn't even allowed as a kid to put my Bible on the ground to tie my shoe, you know, cause it was disrespectful, <laughs> but my professor made a statement. He said, so when we destroy God's creation, it is like tearing a page out of the Bible. Mm. And I will tell you, uh, it is my evangelical framework that has led me to progressive positions. Mm. It is my commitment to the text. It is my commitment to loving my neighbor as myself. It mm-hmm. is my commitment to truth and discovering what is true. Uh, these things um, have led me to this. So uh, the idea the idea that, uh, that uh, you know, I just sort of became an environmentalist, it can only be understood when it's connected to really, and, a very, and it sounds very evangelical, to that kind of conversion moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, that then, that then uh, made me ask questions, bigger questions. Mm-hmm. What is God like? Uh, what does it look like to read the Bible and understand the Bible? Mm-hmm. How, how do you, how do you figure out what you believe? Um, and, you know, for a lot of, a lot of folks and, and who are like you, who are like me, um, we go through these processes and, uh, it is actually who we were that helps us become who we are. It's yeah, not like we I wake agree. up yeah. one day and go, I hate who I am and I'm going to become someone else. We grow out of that person. I remember hearing Barbara Brown Taylor speak at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. We were teaching at a, a writing seminar there and I had asked her a question about her old sermons mm-hmm. and how different they were than her new sermons. And I said, do you, are you, do you read those and are you ashamed of those? And she said, you know, I read them and I think those sermons um, are Barbara Brown Taylor. Those sermons were Barbara Brown Taylor. Um, they're like the rings of a tree. Mm-hmm. 
And that person who was sitting in that seminary class is Jonathan Merritt. Uh-huh. And that person was Jonathan Merritt. It is, it is, will always be a part of me that I pack along and carry along. But I have no doubt today that I wouldn't be who I am had I not been raised the way I was raised. And uh, I think and that's you, important. You may not even be able to tell the story that you're getting ready to tell if you hadn't lived the experience that you had lived. I mean, that's not... <sighs> I do think I, you know, I think about this and I want to talk a little bit more about, you mentioned sort of um, your more progressive take on faith in the world now. Um, And I want to, I want to hear more about that, but I am curious. I, I have conversations with my folks and I'm sure you have conversations with your folks where, you know, obviously you come at things from a very different uh, point of view and perspective. There are, there are places where, a convergence happens and you meet back up again. Um, but there, you know, in other areas, it seems like there's a chasmic divide, um, ideologically, theologically, um, politically, um, socially, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that I, I had this discussion, I'm sure my mom will listen to this, but I had this discussion with my mom where there are times where I know they feel personally attacked when I'm talking about, you know, this is where I come from, you know, but this is where I am now. And I have to remind her, look, I, I'm not angry about my past. I'm not bitter about it. I don't hate where I came from. It was very formative for me for who I am now and where I'm going and how I raise my own children. And I'm, but I'm curious though, first of all, do you have those kinds of conversations with your folks? But second of all, how do you, what's good advice on for anybody listening who's come from a different background, maybe have experienced trauma in that, um, has sort of divorced themselves of it now and sort of exploring, deconstructing, reconstructing, wherever they are in the process. What, what sort of advice do you have for how they might, and, and, and I, I, I split this by saying, I think there are some relationships that are just genuinely toxic and it's very difficult to um, make peace with particular relationships from the past in certain traumatic moments. Um, but for a lot of us, you know, I, 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 it's just, it's just part of our past. It's part of our story. And so when I speak about where I came from, it's not in a place of trying to put my parents down or tell my dad he was a horrible pastor. That's not, that's not in my mind at all. Um, and yet, um, because of where I came from, it's now reformed where I'm going. So what sort of advice do you have uh, for anybody who's trying to square their past with their present and sort of where they see themselves diverging in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, I do have conversations like this a lot with my, with my parents. I would say one, um, particularly for people who have experienced um, a religious or spiritual abuse Mm -hmm. um, in their upbringing. And by the way, that, that, that it's a religious and spiritual abuse is often carried out with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that somebody woke up one day and said, I'd really like to screw up my child. Um, They were doing what they believed God wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Uh, so it's an explanation, not an excuse. There's no excuse for abuse, but you can explain it and, and help the conscious mind understand it. I think, um, those of us who have come from fundamentalism have to remember 
that fundamentalism is a hell of a drug. And yeah. there are a lot of post-fundamentalists who continue to use the tools uh, of fundamentalism that they learned far too well to dismantle or hopefully dismantle the fundamentalism of their friends and their family and their Mm -hmm. parents. And, uh, you know, as Audre Lorde famously said in terms of race, but I would say it applies here, uh, you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need new tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, there are now um, tactics that are deployed, uh, shaming and silencing, mm-hmm. uh, piety and self-righteousness, uh, you know, moral declaration and condemnation that uh, is coming from the left that is like a fun house mirror projection of what I grew up with in the right. And in fact, if you deconstruct it, you realize it's almost the same apparatus that those people have actually learned quite well uh, what their uh, upbringing was trying to teach them. And so uh, I think that we have to, we have to begin looking at the ways in which we have given up on the theology of fundamentalism, but retained uh, the tools or mm-hmm. the mechanisms of fundamentalism, which are equally as corrosive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, in addition, one of the things that has helped me is is spiral dynamics. And if people don't know that, um, it sort of is a, 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 a tool to think about the evolution of societies. And one of the things that it says is that we come in waves, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, it gives colors to everything. And you have like amber, which is kind of uh, values driven. It's mm-hmm. based on discipline, transcendent God, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually you get to kind of where we would be maybe, uh, mm-hmm. which is, is a green, where we look at things like uh, equality, uh, pluralism, uh, globalism, etc. You can't get green without amber and orange. Right. You have, right. we are, if you believe that where you are is better than where you came from, but you can also admit that where you came from was necessary to the birthing process mm-hmm. of where you are, it takes the edge off a little bit because you can offer a kind of gratitude uh, toward those who brought you up, yeah. accepting the gifts, uh, rejecting the trauma that you never asked for and that is not yours to carry, but recognizing that that is part of what has brought you to this moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that, that, that gets us out of uh, that, the, uh, the perpetrator victim yeah. mindset, which we get, can get stuck in. Yeah. It's really interesting. You're talking about dismantling the master's house with the master's tools. I remember when we stepped away from church, um, and I, I, I think some people that listen and follow know, but not everybody does. But I, I mean, I, my, our youngest daughter, of course, we have seven kids. So our youngest daughter, Zuri, is about five and a half. And we haven't been a part of an organized religious community since my wife, Jordana, was pregnant with Zuri. So it's been six plus years since we've been a part of something. And I remember, I remember it was within days of us sort of stepping away from the, our, the, the last church we were a part of. And 
we were being courted for more left-leaning churches. And it was always funny to me because it was like, wait, wait, wait. And grew up at the South, like church member trading was always like the name of the game. We always like, well, we're leaving this church. We're going to go to this church or we're going to start a new one or, you know, whatever the game. And, and it was like, I'm looking at them going, you guys use the same stuff that where we were coming away from, you just do it under a different banner. And, right. and it's just such a funny game. It's like, I didn't leave one side of fundamentalism to join another side of fundamentalism that might, you know, I don't know, vote for somebody that I might vote for, but they do it with the same indignation that I came from. And so I, I think that's an incredibly important point to make just because I, I think we miss that. And I don't think that that's a both sides conversation in the sense uh, that we see it come up a lot here, but it is a problem that seems like a human problem. I agree. And, and, and we getting rid of the tools that we use um, definitely would answer a lot of questions. In fact, it's funny you talk about spiral dynamics. I think the first time I ever heard about spiral dynamics, I was in New York City this was several years ago now, you know, back when we could all get together um, like normal. Um, and you texted me and said, hey, um, you want to come over to the house tonight? And so I came over and you had like this really diverse group of people at your house. I don't remember everybody who was there. And um, I didn't know there was going to be anybody there. Uh, so I walk in and there's all these people there. And i that's the first time I ever heard of Spiral Dynamics. It was just yeah. literally part of casual conversation at the Jonathan Merritt <laughs> apartment in Brooklyn. So, you know, it's it's wise words. And I, before we move on from Spiral Dynamics, though, if people are curious about that or would like to go sort of study that a little bit further, do you have any uh, encouragement for resources um, that they can go check out? You know, there's a book uh, called Spiral Dynamics, and people love that book. Um, but I think a lot of people are attracted to Ken Wilber, who's written on that. I think he's got a brief history of everything. He talks about it in there. Okay. So I'd recommend people to look at those books, but maybe start with an article. Just Google it. See what mm-hmm. you think. Back to kind of what you referenced earlier about sort of your progressive take on things. Um one of the things that we've discussed a lot in our house this year, especially leading up to the election that we've just all um, survived, um, the word progressive in a lot of circles, but especially in circles where we came from, is is an incredibly toxic term. That's a um, it's almost like an anathema idea. Um, but it also then you get into conversations about words like fundamentalism or socialism or what's the new phrase this year that came out cultural marxism um all these different things that we lob over the fence at people in an effort to kind of you know as you mentioned earlier silence them or erase their perspectives on things and uh, i'm curious sort of if you could unpack a little bit your thoughts on how faithfulness to your Christian faith or to the Bible has led you deeper into a more progressive um, take on the world or take on God or take on, you know, fellow humans. And I assume that that also is a way that you've even come to grips with, 
you know, your own story along the way. But I'm just curious kind of how how you square that, because I know that there are people that would listen and go, how? How do you how could you ever? You know, I mean, we had leading up to this election, you heard things like, I, I don't think you could be a Christian and vote for Joe Biden. I don't think you could be a Christian and vote for a Democrat or, vote. you know, of course, you heard it from the other vantage point, too. But I'm curious for you specifically how it's led you in this particular way. Well, I mean, you you would have to you would have we'd have to almost break it down, you know, sort of issue by issue, because or or in terms of kind of the way that I relate to certain sectors, if you're sure. talking about politics or theology or you know different issues, um, I am as Christian as I've ever been. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a church member. I go to church every Sunday. I'm an elder at my church. I have a, a, a Jesuit priest who is my spiritual director. Uh, I love the Bible as much as I always have. And also I'm more progressive than I've ever been. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that may be hard for people to understand, but I would say, ask and I'll tell you more. If somebody were to ask, like, what were things in there where you just, uh, it kind of clicked for you that, if I follow Jesus or if I follow the teachings of the Bible or scripture, um, then I can't not see it like this anymore. Well, I think um, there are, uh, there are questions and then there, there, there are the questions behind the question. Mm. Um, And the, they're they're sort of, you know, the question would be something like, well, how does a pro-life person not want to overturn Roe v. Wade? Or how does a pro-life person uh, (laughs) vote for a pro-choice candidate? Or how does somebody who takes the Bible seriously believe doctrine X Uh or doctrine Y? And each of those conversations could go on for hours, Uh frankly. There are bigger questions, I think, uh, that have to be answered first mm-hmm. that then clarify all of those other questions. One of the big ones is, how do you read the Bible? Mm. How do you interpret the Bible? How do you understand the Bible? Maybe even a more central question is, what is your epistemology? You know, epistemology gonna... is, how do you know what you know? What is your reason for believing what you believe? For some people, the Bible may not be a significant part of their epistemology. So um, that's something that would be important to know. Um, I I grew up in a tradition where at least the Bible was always consulted on everything. Um, And for for the, the tradition that I was in, uh, the most popular interpretation outweighed the knowledge that you would get from anything else. Uh-huh. That's not true in all Christian circles. Do you value logic? Do you value science? Uh-huh. Um, are those are the, uh, Do you value experience? Um, does God speak to us only through the Bible? Or does God speak to us through the Bible as well as other things? Uh Um, And then once you get to the Bible, how do you read it? How do you understand it? How do you interpret it? Uh, And then that leads to other questions like, what do you think God is like? Um, You know, I grew up with a particular view of God that no longer makes any sense to me. Uh And so as you begin to answer those questions, those are coloring the lenses through which you are seeing the world and thinking about the world. And for a lot of people, 
you know, they can argue their interpretation of the Bible as if it's the only one. Uh-huh. I can argue mine as if it's the only one. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think we're all doing the work of discernment. Yeah. We're just trying to figure out what we believe based on the sources of knowledge that we have come to value. And uh, I think there's a kind of, um, particularly among certain religious sects, there is a kind of uh, cognitive framework uh, that uh, makes my rightness contingent upon your wrongness. Right. Right. In other words, like I can't be right unless you're wrong. So Uh I have to prove that you're wrong or otherwise I won't know that I'm right. I won't Uh feel as right as I should. Uh, It's a kind of idolatry of the self, I would Uh say. Uh, it's a kind of, uh, it's, it's a way to bypass, um, the, the, the teachings of Christianity about divine mystery. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it's a way I think for the ego to avoid admitting that it doesn't know what it doesn't know, uh-huh. that it cannot know what it cannot know. Uh, and so, uh, I, I think that that for me to give up some of those, the, 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 the ways of being Christian that are more insular uh-huh. and fundamentalist and instead to embrace an open armed way of being Christian has required thinking about the nature of God. You know, uh, an old pastor, A.W. Tozier, once said, what comes into your mind when you hear the word God is the most important thing about you. Uh-huh. And uh, I think he may have overstated his case somewhat, but what he says <laughs> is at least partially true. Yeah. Um, if you believe that the creator of this universe hates you, if you believe that the person in control of everything uh, is vindictive or temperamental or offers a love that is deeply conditional, if you believe that that person is uh, demands glowing adoration in order to keep their wrath at bay. Um, If you believe that you are being dangled over uh, a fire uh, of eternal torment, if you don't check certain boxes or Uh speak an incantation in in a church service, well, you're going to, you're going to think about a whole bunch of issues differently uh, than do I. And uh, I think the, where I am now, is I'm far less concerned uh, about, and and this has been part of releasing one of the tools of fundamentalism for me, uh, my own sense of rightness insofar as it's even a concern and it's not that much of a concern for me is no longer dependent upon whether or not I can shame, silence, or uh, argue my evangelical and fundamentalist friends into the ground. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the, the times when I become concerned about what they believe is when those beliefs are hurting other people, and they uh-huh. often do. Uh, but a simply, you know, simply uh, uh, fervent belief in some doctrine that I'm not all that concerned with. No, I don't, I'm not all that. I'm not all that interested in having those conversations. The the idea of, and I, I know we both heard this a lot growing up of like the uh, the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. That idea, where it was just very quick here's what it is. Or those lines of like, you know, the Bible clearly says, um, you know, those, uh, 
axioms, adages that people would use frequently. To be able to unpack this idea of everything I thought that was so simple, there was always an answer for it. There must be. Uh, what would they, they would often quote the New Testament verse of always be ready to give an account, um, et cetera. Do you feel like, though, that there had been such a conditioning of, of fear uh, that if you began to question any of these things, the whole thing would fall apart? And that's why we ultimately just landed on phrases like that, that quickly shut down discussion, quickly shut down thought, uh, quickly shut down the possibility of relationship with someone um, who you might be able to have a genuine dialogue with and instead continue to see them as other. Uh, Do do you think that that fear was the main driver for those things? You know, I wish that it were that simple, Mm. you know, where you could go, oh, this is just fear. Right. Um, Because I think what that would make, that would assume is, is look at me at how much fear I don't have. Right. Mm-hmm. Look at how courageous I am. So, so critiquing, creating a kind of a streamlined attack mm-hmm. that this is really about fear, um, you know, makes you feel better. In the same way, by the way, that conservatives will say, "Oh, you're just trying to be popular and please culture," <laughs> sure. um, because what does that make them courageous? They say yeah. the same thing. They say you're afraid of offending all of your woke progressive friends. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're motivated by fear. And we go, no, you're motivated by fear because you're afraid of fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's fear. There's enough fear to go around. Uh, I don't know. How sure. to, I don't know how to quantify it. I think that I would understand it first in terms of uh, history. Uh, the evangelical movement has largely been a reactionary movement. Uh, it w- it reacted uh, to the Enlightenment uh-huh. uh, and the scientific age and the rise of uh, Darwinian evolution. Uh-huh. Uh, and out of that, the reaction was a kind of focus on apologetics of, uh, to create um, index card size arguments for believing yep. that you are as smart as everyone else says you're not. Uh-huh. And so when people say things like, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It's memorable. It's marketable. Uh-huh. And it moves us beyond complex conversations about the nature of sacred texts mm-hmm. that bog us down and keep us from doing the things we want to do, namely converting people. And mm-hmm. that leads you to the second point, which is a reaction to and embedding within the Great Awakenings. Right. Uh, yeah. The evangelical movement um, is largely revivalistic. Mm-hmm. It is conversionistic. So that explains why um, you often find that it is, um, it's based around large gatherings. Uh It values uh, kind of in a kind of quasi-capitalistic way. It values large numbers that bigger is better. It's successful. Yeah. Successful. It has a success matrix, which is converting people 
uh, it supercharges the movement with a sense of urgency mm-hmm. and moral heft. Uh, and then I think you have a response to the America, American cultural revolutions uh, of the 1960s, when mm. you had the rise of feminism, mm-hmm. the rise of the civil rights movement, the rise of the gay rights movement, the rise of the anti-war movement with Vietnam. You had uh, a ban on prayer in schools, a ban on uh, Bible reading in schools. You had the legalization of birth control, the legalization uh, of abortion. Uh Uh, You had all of these movements, no-fault divorce. Uh, You had all of these um, progressivizing social movements that gave all of these uh, apologetic, centric, conversionistic Hmm. evangelicals who gave them the sense or feeling that the world they loved was disappearing. And so that the, the reaction to that was a political supercharging of the movement. We had the rise of the religious right. So just like we had the rise of conversionism or the rise of apologetics, we had the rise of the religious right. And uh, that has made the movement political. So if you mm. look at an emphasis on conversion, and that makes them highly pragmatic, uh, a uh, the rise of apologetics, which makes them highly argumentative mm-hmm. and often um, highly simplistic, and the rise of the religious right, which makes them highly partisan. Mm-hmm. Now you can understand the way that this movement has uh, come mm. to be without simply moralizing right, or providing right. a kind of. Uh, an answer that is in its own way reductionistic. Sure. Well, it's interesting, and this is probably a podcast for another time, but I, it is fascinating to me how if all of those things you mentioned were in place, where you had prayer in schools, you had Bible reading, you had um, uh, incredibly limited divorce, et cetera, that how in the world, if, the, if things then were supposed to be the way that they were supposed to be, you know, how it all got dismantled so quickly. I mean, in the span really of about a decade, maybe all those things sort of went away, you know, and it's like they, we've been clawing back at them since the sixties, you know, and even uh, uh, big portions of the Southern Baptist convention um, saw things differently pre Roe v. Wade than they saw them after Roe v. Wade and sort of with the rise of the religious right. And so, well, if you, if you think about, if you think about the history uh, of the evangelical movement, when you think about the, the, the political movement that now represents the majority of, of white evangelicals uh, and the slogan of that movement, mm-hmm. make America great again, um, the word that's doing all the heavy lifting there is again. Yep. It Absolutely. begs the question, when? When, yeah, when, when was it? When was it great, right? And then you begin to realize that they are calling back to a time of civil religion, of Christian primacy, mm-hmm. uh, of the 1950s before it all fell apart. Uh, it's racially problematic. It's problematic from a, from a feminist perspective or, or a gender equality perspective. It's mm-hmm. deeply troubling to LGBTQ people, to people who aren't uh, beholden to the republicanization uh, of evangelicalism. But I can also understand it because sure. if, if you are part of a movement that is predominantly run 
uh, by white, straight, Christian, conservative males. It is true that in some key ways, your life was better or easier then than it is now. It was more comfortable. It was more accepted. It was less scrutinized. And I can understand from a a, a pure pain point, uh, you might might desire to go back to a time when it was simpler and easier and the world was more amenable to the way you think. Uh, Mm. I can understand that. Uh, Of course, you'll be hard-pressed to find individuals outside of that group who want to go back to that. I'm sure your wife doesn't <laughs> want to go back to a time when you had to sign so that she could get a credit card or a lot right, of credit. Right. Uh, I'm sure that not a lot of black folks want to go back to the 1950s for good reason. Right. Uh, you know, if you, you walk around New York City and you hear stories mm-hmm. of a generation of gay men who died isolated in hospitals here mm-hmm. because the religious right was fighting the Reagan revolution to block AIDS research uh, to save countless lives. Well, I can understand how they wouldn't at all want to go back uh, to those days. Uh, But yes, I would imagine if you're a straight white male, wealthy uh, evangelical. Yeah, I, I, I can understand the sense of loss you must feel and the desire you might have to go back to make America quote, great end quote again. Well, it's interesting too. Like if you watched, and um, I remember some years ago watching the show Mad Men, and you, of course you had the Don Draper world, which was was of that generation, and he wasn't tied to any sort of belief system, as far as I can remember. It's been a few years since I watched an episode, but it's it's interesting to me of that world was idyllic for him in a non-religious context, just as it was for straight white males within a religious context. And so it's almost as if that sort of version of Christianity had made it easy for straight white men, regardless of whether you practiced their particular version of Christianity. It was just the world as it was set up and the world just looks incredibly different now. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, my wife, like we, we still have conversations. They're still dismantling that happens in our own marriage. And we, we celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary this year, 2020. And, you know, there's still things that we are having to unlearn. And, and I, 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 I won't even say we, I am having to unlearn just because of how deep that stuff went growing up, you know, and, and there were, I remember books early in our marriage that, you know, like created to be his helpmeet for women, you know, and, and how you were essentially just supposed to show up at the front door every day, beautiful, with dinner on the table and the house clean. And, and, and and it's such a strange thing for me of how popular that was, even in the eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands, um, where looking back now, it was just this like desperate clinging to these things that didn't exist anymore and never will exist again. Mm -hmm. You know, you take the issue of family, Mm -hmm. um, the ideal picture If you ask somebody, what is the biblical model of a family? An evangelical will say uh, two parents of opposite gender who uh, are faithful to each other, who are raising uh, biological children, 
who are uh, obedient, a wife who submits to her husband, who is uh, the godly provider of the family. Mm-hmm. Now, that description is not a description you'll find in the pages of the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's just not. Uh, if anybody's listening to this, uh, email me. Please let me know. Please. <laughs> I want to hear about it. I want to hear about that perfect family, uh, you know, in the text. Uh, are you going to go to Abraham, who slept with his slave? Which, by the way, wasn't considered at all controversial. No. Uh, it, it was or, his wife's idea. Right? <laughs> she was like, right? just go sleep with her. Uh, the, yes, exactly. His wife, the woman that he claimed was his sister and allowed uh, Pharaoh to consummate with mm. uh, and tried to almost murder his child. Uh, do you do you look at Isaac and his wives? Do you look at, uh, you know, Joseph and what he went through? Do you, I mean, mm-hmm. you begin to think about Moses, who was in an interreligious uh, marriage with the, the daughter of a pagan priest. Uh, you know, it, it's very, very difficult. Jesus was single. Uh, Paul, we don't really know. We just know his situation seems a little bit messed up. And of course, yeah, uh, just a little. You know, if any of the disciples were married, they, uh, from every indication in the text, they abandoned their wives and traveled to foreign countries to spread the gospel, where tradition says they were, they were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, David was a polygamist and a rapist. Uh, Solomon had hundreds of concubines and we claim he's the wisest person in the world. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it is truly a mess. So people who say, I believe in the biblical framework, um, which one? Uh, now, if you want to see the quote unquote biblical framework, all you have to do is make sure that you get TNT on your YouTube live. Because if you go to TNT, you can get Father Knows Best and you can get Leave It to Beaver. And you're going to find beautiful pictures of this quote unquote biblical family. But you will not find uh, those portraits in the text of sacred scripture. Yeah, it sort of feels like if we did practice more of a quote unquote biblical form of relationship, I, I imagine church would be a lot rowdier today oh, yeah. right, than, it, right. than it is. So. Right. Um, in terms of, you know, your own story, mm-hmm. the story that you're sort of writing in the in this book uh, that I and I understand, because we're not going to hear we're not going to actually see the physical book for a while. You've still got lots of work to do and it takes a long time to get a, a book out and on shelves or on your Kindle. Um, but for you, I know over the, over, tw- you know, the months in 2021, you'll be slowly kind of entering into some new dialogue about yourself and your own journey sort of leading up to the book. You know, for what do you hope people come away with um, in their own stories, people who have faced trauma, people who, who feel really sort of up against it or below it? Um, and as you're revealing portions of your story that really could echo in the halls of people's hearts um, it, it, with messages and, and hope that they really need to hear. It's not a memoir, like you said, but it, but it is telling a little bit of your story, maybe a lot of your story that you've genuinely never shared publicly before. Um, 
And so I, what do you hope people come away with as you begin to kind of reveal this side of yourself that is detached from just sort of the journalistic prowess of Jonathan Merritt that we've all come to connect with over the years? You know, there's a there was a study that was conducted by an Ivy League college not too long ago on storytelling. Mm. And they hooked up uh, and scanned the brains of uh, audiences as a storyteller told a story. Mm. What they found was, is that the more an audience was able to connect with the story, that was the storyteller was telling, mm. the more their brain waves would begin to overlap and align. That as the storyteller underwent a transformation in their story, the people would undergo that transformation. Mm. That as you learn, as the storyteller learns a lesson, that the audience can learn the lesson. That as the storyteller finds courage mm. to live into their truest selves, uh, the audience can find the courage to live into their truest self. Mm. When um, the storyteller finds within them the strength uh, to accept the risks of vulnerability, that the reader will also accept the risks of being vulnerable themselves. Uh, what I hope to do in this book is not just put forth some good ideas, and, and I think I'll be able to do that. I think mm -hmm. that we need, uh, we've got a lot of good books on trauma healing that come from a medical perspective mm -hmm. uh, that deals primarily with the body in isolation. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of good books that deal with it from a psychological perspective that focuses right. primarily on the mind. I hope that uh, a lot of the ideas here will allow us to give the spirit a chance to draw up a seat at the table and to join the conversation so that we can engage in this journey in a holistic way. Uh, but in so doing, it will require courage from me, a vulnerability from me, a willingness to tell stories that haven't seen the light of day, at least not in this way. Right. What do I hope? I hope that people reading this book will find the same strength and courage and vulnerability in their own lives because um, that is truly the prerequisite uh, to healing from trauma. Mm -hmm. Because to deal with uh, the frightening experiences of our past is in itself frightening. Mm -hmm. To deal with uh, the overwhelming experiences uh, that we've come through, it has relational implications that are scary. Right. And uh, I hope that as people hear my story alongside what I have learned in this last decade, that they will say, same. Mm -hmm. And that, that they will see the work that I have done. And they will say, you know what? If that guy uh, can find the courage to take the hits in the pursuit of being his truest and healthiest self, then maybe, just maybe I can too. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that if, if this book could convince people to do that, well, then I, I think it would be well worth the time, the effort, and all of the toxicity that I'm sure I will endure from the people who are not as pleased with my conclusions. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, and, uh, you know, as is tradition, I guess the biggest question I have here at the end is uh, how do we have better sex? Um, we have a, a, a pretty divided nation. Our politics is becoming very nuanced. Our, our religious communities are fractured in lots of ways. Um, family relationships, um, you know, communities, neighborhoods, boroughs. So I, you know, when it comes down to kind of where we go from here, Jonathan Merritt, I'm curious, how do you think we can have better sex? You know, I, I'd say a few things. Um, one, I think, uh, and I and I and I told somebody this the other day. I have some general rules for questions that are like this, and mm-hmm. I'll share those. I'll share those with you. One, I think we have to seek. We have to always seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Mm-hmm. So often, when we're in conversations, particularly particularly those of us who have, um, you know, been steeped in the apologetic culture that we mm-hmm. raised in. Uh, we enter into conversations with primarily a desire to be a winner, uh-huh. uh, to be the right one, uh, to be heard, seen, and understood, and then only secondarily to maybe give a concession. Right. And if we prioritize in our um, in, in in the way that whatever sect you're a part of is overlapping with other sects. If you can prioritize understanding first, mm-hmm. uh, I would do that. Uh, as a connection with that, uh, I would say the second thing is, is whenever you're engaging in a conversation with somebody who's in another sect, another group, another tribe, uh, challenge yourself to make sure that more than half of every sentence you speak ends with a question mark. Mm. Uh, That if we can shift from declarative-driven conversations to conversations Mm -hmm. that are steeped in interrogatives, I think we'll have already made uh, a lot of progress. Uh, And then the third thing I would say is I go to Jesus's golden rule. Um, so much of what we do and, and, and can do better is, can be explained, I think, by the golden rule. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, congratulations, because <laughs> most major religions have some version of the mm-hmm. golden rule. It's not something that like, you know, it's like love your neighbor as yourself. Christians don't corner the market on that. Buddhists have a version of that. Muslims have a version of that. Uh-huh. Uh, I have humanist friends who don't even believe in God that have a version of that. So for me, uh, I I derive that thinking from Jesus because that happens to be the faith path that I'm choosing to walk. But if you're listening to this and that's not yours, if you're part of another sect that also wants to improve the way you think and interact with the world, you can root yourself in your tradition's own version of that. Mm. Just to begin to treat people as you'd want to be treated. And um, oftentimes I find that I am treating people in ways um, that I have been treated before. I'm actually mirroring or reflecting back the poor treatment that I have received, internalized, and am now deploying. 
rather than treating them as if I were them and talking to myself. Mm. And if we can begin to engage in a kind of rhetorical and intellectual role reversal, I think it would have powerful implications for not just how our communities could be arbiters of peace and reconciliation instead of contributing to cultural chaos, mm-hmm. but how I think, I think it would also help our individual sex begin to learn from people that we've considered to be others mm-hmm. who have a heck of a lot to teach us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, think, I think if we could begin to learn from each other, to understand each other, and to ask questions of each other uh, before we engage in in any kind of expedition uh, to prove our own rightness. I think that we would be well on our way to having better sex. Well, well said, sir. I appreciate your your take. Um, You know, for these years, I've always appreciated your voice and your advice. And uh, today is no exception. So thank you so much for your time and your relationship and your voice in the world. And I'm really excited to see what happens next. And I'm excited to finally get to get back together in person again one day when we go and with or without a mask, I don't care how it works. Like whatever. Oh, yes. I, 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 and I always tell people, I say, I look forward with great anticipation to the day that we can be together in person again. And I mean that certainly with you, you're, you're a dear friend and, uh, and thanks for having me on the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of better sex. If you liked or were challenged by what you heard, you can subscribe to the Sex Therapy List on my website, bettersex.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-S-E-C-T-S.com. You can follow us on all social platforms on the handle. And please like and share this episode with anyone you think would appreciate the conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Matthew Chambers. We'll see you next time for another episode of Better Sex. Better Sex.